Welcome to the Game of Thrones podcast by Bald Move. We're the officially unofficial podcast for Game of Thrones, uh, formerly on HBO, future on HBO. Uh, I'm your host, Aaron, and I've got a surprise podcast I'm dropping on you. When we signed off, we said there would be things here and there that uh, we drop in on the feed and kind of touch base uh, as new things are released. We're waiting for Fire and Blood Volume 2, waiting for Winds of Winter, waiting for the prequels, waiting for any sequels. Uh, but we've had some a new piece of uh, media drop. Our old friend Kim Renfro, which if you've listened to this podcast for several years, you know that she's been on a time or three on our podcast uh, to talk about Game of Thrones. She's been writing for Insider uh, since season five, uh, doing deep dives of the coverage over there. And she has an official guide to the Game of Thrones book that she has released. It just dropped this week. Uh, it's available on in, on Amazon or bookstores everywhere. Any of your local bookstores, uh, you can get it on audiobook. Uh, we're very pleased to once again have uh, the entertainment correspondent for Insider and now published author Kim Renfro on our show. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Uh, so I've read a good deal of the book, and of course, I am fascinated by all things Game of Thrones. I'm also fascinated in kind of like the process of writing. Um, uh, I've written a couple books myself. I was wondering, um, just from a standpoint of, of that, like how did this process start? Like where were you just sitting in your living room and you thought, light bulb, I want to write a book. Was so, so were you approached? Uh, was this something that kind of dovetailed from your uh, uh, experience with uh, working at the in, uh, at Insider or, or what? Yeah, so it definitely was sort of spurred by my experience working at Insider. I know a few other reporters who had basically been able to turn their beat or whatever it was that they were covering into a book deal. Um, so I kind of, I was aware that that was a, a possibility, like that was an avenue I could go down if I felt like it. And then as, as you know, we got confirmation that the final season was coming, we were going to have this gap year. I just kind of realized like, all right, someone is going to write a book about this show if they haven't already started. And I just felt like I wanted to be that person. So I, I started talking to folks who I knew who had written books before and got some advice um, and pointed in a couple of good directions um, for like how to put together a book proposal. And then I found an agent with that book proposal who said that, you know, this seemed like a viable idea. So I signed with a literary agent um, and that was in January, gosh, twenty. 18. I'm like, what year is it? <laughs> uh, it's been the longest, yeah. like 12 months of my life. Relatable. Um, yeah. So yeah, I got an agent. I polished up the book deal and then, or the book proposal. And then he shopped it out to a bunch of different publishing houses. And we wound up with three offers on the book, which was really awesome. And I decided to go with Simon and Schuster. What was the, because, uh, you know, reading this book, it seems like you, uh, you had a great deal of material that kind of came from your reporting. Uh, you had this wealth of like interviews and articles that you had written and like all the stuff that you can kind of draw from. Uh, did it, would, did this feel like more like being the editor on an anthology where you're just kind of like tying all this stuff together or was there, did, was there a lot of daunting original material that you had to write or kind of like, was, was the writing process stressful or easy breezy? What, what was it like? <laughs> uh, I definitely out of like kind of laziness was like, okay, what if I already written that I can use 
in this book because obviously uh, I had a limited amount of time in which to get it done. But I, I definitely made my outline based on things I knew I could easily write about and lend my expertise to. But I also specifically built out chapters of things that I had never had the opportunity to write about for Insider for whatever reason um, and really felt like digging into. I'm, you know, my book wound up being a little over 94,000 words, I think. Um, and for for me in my regular job, writing like a 2,000 word article for Insider about Game of Thrones was long. Like that was like about the longest I could go. Mm-hmm. So I was really excited about the idea of being able to extend what I was saying and be able to kind of tackle it with a, a slightly different voice, like have a little bit more fun with it than I would in my normal professional writing capacity online. So... Yeah, it was it was a mix of both. There's definitely some chapters in the book that are like were basically copied and pasted from articles I had written, but then just tweaked a little bit. Um, but then I really wanted to to explore other things like the whole pilot episode um, and sort of the earlier seasons and the pre Game of Thrones universe of Benioff and Weiss and Martin. I had never really written about in depth. So that was all new. And I got to do a lot of research for that, which was fun. It kind of dovetails on one of the things, uh, aside from just kind of meta discussion about the the art of writing a book, uh, that is the thing that surprised me the most, too, because like I you know, was aware that there was a previous pilot, and I know <laughs> that they did a lot of reshoots, and then sharp-eyed people can see, like, oh, this is the blonde Tyrion from the original pilot, and this is the super blonde Jamie from the earlier pilot. As, as, as you go through, there's a little bit that stuff that survives in the existing pilot, but... I did not know it was the apparent train wreck that it was. And like, the whole <laughs> few first few chapters, because this is kind of sort of chronological and like, you know, the conception of Game of Thrones, the production of Game of Thrones, uh, you know, the 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 the, the series itself, fan reaction. Like there's kind of like this, you know, a broad chronological bent to the book. And the first few chapters about this inception. How did this thing get greenlit? Because because you, you, you do this good job of laying out like what a disaster the pilot was, how relative, relatively untested a talent the double D's were individually and as a team. Um, and you look at the sums of money involved, like $20 million for the pilot that had to be reshot 90%, $50 million budget total for the first season. Uh, do you have any insight of like why this property why this project why this team the hbo took this big gamble on yeah i mean one of the most interesting things to me that i hadn't known before and hadn't read before was what is called the show bible and that's this basically a pitch document that benioff and weiss had to write and that was their pitch to hbo that this was them laying out here's exactly what the show's going to be about here's our vision for it here's why it's like shows that have been successful before like deadwood or hb or sopranos and here's why it's not like harry potter and it's not like you know i think they called it corny and kitty fantasy it was their sort of dig at existing franchises and reading that what struck me the most was just like this very brazen confidence that was like coming off the page, you know, they're swearing every other word and being like, people are going to lose their motherfucking minds. And like, and all of that coming from two men who had never like run a show before they had never written for television before they had never had a successful uh, TV program. And I, I think that it's that, 
it, it was like the surprising level of confidence, but I'm also like, okay, I like, this is, I guess how you get shit done in Hollywood, you know, like kind of rolling back to what I was saying about writing my proposal. It was very hard for me to put together a book proposal. And like, you kind of have to brag about yourself in it. You have to like say why I'm the person who's going to write this game of Thrones book. And here's everything that I've accomplished. And here's like, why people are going to buy the thing from me and not from anybody else. This and motherfucker's going to fly off the goddamn shelves. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I, like, I struggled really hard with that. I have a lot of, like, creeping self-doubt and, you know, imposter syndrome is the kind of catch-all term for it. And I think Benioff and Weiss, for whatever reason, if they have that or if they had that at any point, it's definitely gone now and it wasn't visible on that page. And I think that they just did a really good job of packaging this idea of, okay, we know Lord of the Rings was a success. Here's why this show is going to be a success for HBO. You know, Lord of the Rings didn't have any sex or like this sort of like dirty, uh, like HBO style appeal to it. And I think they did a really good job of selling it. And then I think they got lucky with the people who were on the other end of that pitch. And those people just felt like taking a swing. They felt like it was time for for HBO to come out of the gates with something new. Um, You know, they didn't know it was going to be the success that it was. I think, again, Benioff and Weiss got lucky by being handed this roadmap by George R. R. Martin that was like some of the best fantasy writing we've ever seen in this entire country. Uh, So... Yeah, I think it was a combination of luck and just like brazen confidence that they sort of managed to, in so many words, like BS their way through the through the learning curve. And then once they got a handle on it, it was, you know, it was all uphill from there. Which came first when they're writing that that the show Bible? Did they have George Martin? Did they have George Martin on board before they went to pitch this to HBO, or they pitched to HBO and then and then won Martin? Because I know they actually did win Martin over this famously long dinner that they had, where you know they essentially kind of like the the seal of approval was put once they correctly deduced the actual identity of uh, Jon Snow's parents. Uh, do you know which which came first on that? They definitely had his blessing before they got started. I'm pretty sure because. Okay. Um, yeah, they, they had to know that George was on board. And again, it, uh, speaking of like more luck, it was kind of serendipitous that Benioff and Weiss were given the books by George's then agent, or he's still his agent, uh, Vince Gerardis, uh, one of his agents, gave them the gave Benioff and Weiss the books and they, you know, devoured them. And they privately decided that this should be an HBO show, that that would be the best fit for it. And George had been pitched many times on it, on turning the books into movies or like a trilogy or something. And he was also privately thinking this should be an HBO show. That's the best fit for it. Um, So it was definitely kind of serendipitous that they sat down for that meeting and they were both like, Hey, we should make an HBO show. After that lunch, it was up to Benioff and Weiss to put together the pitch and write, you know, the pilot script and probably the the entire season one outline, which is what's in that show Bible. Um, and then, you know, they convinced HBO to give them $10 million and set up shop in Northern Ireland and film a pilot, which then went horribly, horribly wrong. Not like, okay. It definitely was a disaster, but it's like it's clear that it's clear that the folks at HBO saw something in that disaster that was that was workable. You know, if it was a wholesale like this is a pile of trash and this is going nowhere, they maybe would have just cut their losses. But I think 
we're lucky that uh, the the then guys in charge, Richard Plepler and Michael Lombardo, were able to see the potential in that. And I think that's a full credit to them that they knew, okay, these guys didn't nail it on the first try, but this is a very compelling story and these are best-selling books. So like, let's let's just throw some more millions of dollars at them and hope that it works out. Yeah, I know reading those chapters, it seems like the things that really impressed was the casting, uh, you know, because very few changes were made. I know they had, uh, like, uh, they substituted Jennifer Ellie for uh, Michelle Farley as, as Lady Cat, and there's a few others, um, and some minor changes to, like, you know, wigs and costuming, but, like, the production value was there, and the main cast was there, and it seemed like that was, like, if you squint, you're like, I can see this. Yeah. Um, but it's funny because like listening to you tell, tell this, I feel like all the seeds for its successful inception, like, you know, the 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 let's say confidence of the, the showrunners um, and like maybe their their inexperience with like, you know, trying to do this and actually failing that made the get off the ground. But it's also the thing that made it very hard to land in, in a universally successful way. Um so I, I I got a lot of other questions and stuff I want to talk about, but we're like uh, when as uh, since we're kind of talking about the arc of Game of Thrones, what is your take on what happened? You know, uh, every uh, this this is like one of the A one flagship shows of the game of the Golden Age of Television. Uh, it was met with kind of wide disapproval. If you look at the IMDb. Uh, and Rotten Tomatoes rankings of the seasons, you get to like, you know, the final season and just things fall off a cliff. Uh, and I know it's got its defenders and its supporters and and, and probably some in this audience are, are amongst those cats. But like, you know, there's a there's a lot of uh, a lot of disapproval. What? And there's so many different there's so many interesting things like the fact that they they just wanted to stay to 13 episodes in the last two yeah. seasons. The fact that they, you know, HBO is like, hey, we'll pay for more if you want to, like, you know, let this thing give this thing uh, room to breathe. Like, eh. What what happened? Like, did they have this? Was this good faith? This is all we need to tell the story. Was this them kind of like, want, you know, being impatient with kind of writing George's fan fiction for them? Was it just them eager to get on to other projects? What's your read on this? Yeah, I mean, fully from just like an outside close observation of of them and the production over the years. Um, I've unfortunately never been able to interview them, but I would love to someday. But I did, I did all, I did just get the increasing sense that they were burned out. Like if you watch even, you know, those inside the episode things became kind of like yeah, their, memes. <laughs> their own running meme for the final season. But it's like to me, I was I was watching two people talk about a show that they were just like tired of being so in the muck with, if that makes sense. Like, right. you it- know, they were they were on year nine, I think, total of uh-huh. living in a different country. 80% of the year mm-hmm. working harder than probably most people work in this business. Like game of Thrones, you know, there's like Pretty the grueling. cliche of like, Oh, it's movie. Like it's, you know, it's a movie, but just six episodes or whatever. But it's like, it really was a, a scale of production that like no other television show has seen before. And again, they've never done this. It's not like they were seasoned television producers who went into a decade of like the hardest work of their lives. This was their first experience with this. So I just got the sense that sure HBO would have given them as much time and money as they wanted, but I felt like they were ready to move on and be done with this and wrap it up. And everyone like, 
you know, all of the cast kept kind of parroting that line of like, oh, well, like, we'd rather go out on a high note than like stick or like overstay our welcome and have the show fizzle out. Sure, that's true. But I don't think that they were in danger of doing that. I don't think that if we had two, two, ten up two 10 episode seasons for, for seven and eight, that people would have been like chastising them for milking, milking the show. So I don't know. I I get the sense that yes, they were tired. Yes. They were ready to move on to something else. It's also like, sure. They had this sort of unearned confidence in that pitch letter, but so much of that confidence was built off of reading George's incredible story and being like, hell yeah, we can like, this is going to be amazing. Mm -hmm. They didn't sign up to write their own show. They did not sign up to finish George's story. And so however you feel about the job that they did with that, I don't think that you can fault the fact that they didn't think that that was going to be their job. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the, where when I'm charitable to the double D's, I often come back to that. Like yeah, as you talk about the the insane quantity of work it takes to pull something like Game of Thrones off, well, that's just an adaptation, and right. there's plenty of of talent in you know an adapted screenplay. But then when you're just having to write an original screenplay and it's not your story, and there's like you also you know if it was your story, maybe it wouldn't made every all the decisions that went down. To, I do think that it's yeah. I don't know. It felt Where, like there's a lot of frost in the the relationship between the the showrunners and 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 Martin too. And I don't know if that's real, perceived, or you know maybe it's just it's just business and it's unfortunate for everybody involved. But like that's that's how I felt as a fan looking looking out uh, in from the outside. Yeah, where I where I fault them again from the outside looking in is that I like if they did feel like they were at this sort of like burnout point or they were a little bit running low on like efforts to put in whatever, I wish that they had like expanded their writer's room or just mm-hmm. like doled out a little bit more to people like Brian Cogman because there's a reason why A Night of the Seven Kingdoms yeah. is like lauded as the best episode and it's because Brian Cogman is the person credited on it and he he was always a writer who I think pretty consistently on the show was really really dedicated to those like smaller character moments and Benioff and Weiss really enjoyed tackling like the bigger mm-hmm. epic battle whatever you want to call it. And that was the whole last season with the exception right. of Night of the Seven Kingdoms. Yeah. Right. And so I, my biggest lament is that like, I, I have a feeling that by the time they were hitting season seven and eight and they felt like, okay, we don't have George's material anymore. Th- that was also like, they were hitting their peak of winning Emmys and ever like, you know, they were getting nothing but praise for yeah. this show. So, so I feel like they felt like, okay, fine. We got this. And I kind of wish that they had just been like, just in case we don't got this, maybe let's ask for like some extra voices in the room to like right. help us land ship. But I think that by then, Again, if their confidence was overblown before they even started making the show, I can't imagine how how confident they felt right. in themselves during that like seasons. Like th- the fact that season five was like a Emmy award winning, like record breaking year for them. Mm-hmm. And that, in my opinion, is the worst season. Interesting. I have my, I have my issues with season eight. I think as a whole, season five is worse. See, I. And I remember saying this on the podcast is like, I think uh, like as recently as the end of season eight, seven, I'm like, 
you know, Game of Thrones, great show. It's very exciting. I said, but if they don't stick to landing in season eight, I think there's going to be a lot of long knives coming out for season six and seven. Uh, definitely, yeah. definitely. I think you're, you're so you, I mean, the, the big problems with season five, I imagine are like the Dornish subplot. It's like, it's Dorn, but it's also just like, there's no balance to it. It's huh. really, really bleak, like from start to finish with the, yeah. and like hard home is the pinnacle of that right. season. And it's, it's one of my like, top five episodes of the whole series mm -hmm. but even that it's not like that's not an epic glorious fight like that's a massacre it's a beat down, that's really yeah. ominous mm -hmm. and there's just like they completely abandoned what i think was always great about earlier seasons was like this balance of there's some levity there's some really nice pairings of characters and good character arcs but it was just like that season was all about bringing bringing each of our characters down to their lowest points mm -hmm. with no real optimism mm -hmm. and again that was like that was the first season after they had the sort of bullet points laid out for them by george and so i'm just like season five just continues to baffle me because i'm like just a lot of the narrative choices they made like with sansa stuff all the doran stuff for sure which fair i think that was dave hill wrote some of those episodes but brian cogman also did have a hand in some of those episodes so you know nobody got out of season five <laughs> looking in my opinion i right. feel like it was a low point kind of across across the board in terms of the writing um and the and then after that it's like yeah i like to me people the people who were like really really taken aback with season eight and and their dislike of it it's totally fine totally valid for me I, it was a little interesting watching the conversation because i was like these problems have been there sure. for for seasons. You know? I think people and, were willing, because I always just, uh, had the analogy of like, you know, sometimes you find yourself off road and, you know, you can continue down this, this bumpy gravel path, but sometimes it's a good idea is just like shift it into low gear, drive through the mud, get back on the highway. And I felt yeah. like there was a lot of that in five, like, okay, well, they are going someplace. We don't know where they're going. And they were driving down this road that George, you know, had paved and then it turned to gravel and then it turned. So like, they're trying to like, it's a pretty broken rough ground, but they're going to make it. And right. when it turns out the destination was a landfill, like, <laughs> okay, well now I'm questioning all the detours that we made now too. So it's like, it's like, it's right. where it's like, I kept on giving them rope and giving them rope because yeah. like they, it's just like you said, all the things, uh, that led to their success, that that confidence, and you know when they're kind of like you're already saying, entering the trough of the Game of Thrones experience, and they're like, "We're crushing it, bro! Look at all the Emmys!" And why right. would they hand the reins over? Why would they ex exhaust? But you know, if, if you're exhausted and you're tired, you know, like HBO turns over showrunners, it's not unecedented. Like, look how many showrunners fucking True Blood had, you know. Yeah. Uh, I mean, not that I would that was a great success them. story, but yeah, I would never have expected them to step back from showrunners. Again, it's I think it's that writers' room problem. Mm. A bring some freaking women in every once in a while, fellas. Yeah. It's not going to kill you. Mm. But also, like, I think Brian Cogman. I I feel like Brian Cogman understood what people wanted out of like a, a final episode, and Benioff and Weiss, for whatever reason, were were very convinced that all people cared about was the, bigger was the motherfucker and blowing away the audience and blowing right. people's minds and they just leaned into that yeah right. ah it's unfortunate i i wonder what your uh what's your 
kind of gauge on how the fan base is. Because, you know, one thing about being on our podcast is to a certain extent, after doing this for many, many years and the way we've covered the last few seasons, we've kind of self-selected, especially after we've covered season eight, we've kind of self-selected our the fan base because the fans that just love the show and don't want to hear anything about negative have moved on to other pastures. So maybe we're a little myopic, but I know you, uh, we didn't get a chance to go because we were too busy to the Con of Thrones. You know, you're doing promotion for the book now. You've been a lot more plugged in in the last few months uh, since, you know, I've kind of like moved on to other things. What what do you feel like, what what does the fan base think about right now? Uh, what, is, what, what was the mood at Con of Thrones, et cetera? Oh, Con of Thrones was a delight. That was like, I felt revived from Con of Thrones. Did in it feel a way. like a support group or was people just like, you know what, we're, not, we're just going to, de- we're just going to ignore the elephant in the room and talk about how awesome Game of Thrones was. <laughs> No, it was a it was a mixed bag. I think it depended on what panel you were at. Some of the panels it felt like like support group time, but I think more more often than not it was like let's celebrate this thing that we all love and that has obviously brought us all into this room together. But then it was like there would just be the occasional like aside or like a joke about whatever. But for the most part, it was just really it was a really nice reminder to me of just how many great people I've met through this fandom Mm. and just how lovely everyone can be and supportive. And like we all have this shared interest and yeah, it was Con of Thrones itself was really nice. And I think that that speaks to the in-person interactions about Game of Thrones versus the Internet and like online interactions about Game of Thrones. Because for me, for me, season eight is not a black or white thing. It's not a I hate this or I love it. It's like a very complicated relationship that I have to the show and to how I feel about individual things that happened and choices that were made. And it's really hard to have that conversation in like a 140 character tweet or like a few Slack messages. Whereas if you're chatting with someone in real life, you can kind of like dig at the things that bothered you or didn't bother you a little bit more. It's also tough because like, I think I've never seen anything like this where you know, because if, if, because a show when you're grading it, it's like, OK, what does it look like? What does it sound like? Who is in it? Yeah. And and what dialogue are they saying? And how well are they selling the dialogue they're saying? And, you know, what do you think of the plot? And like usually when something's a mixed bag, like it's, you know, you've got like, well, the casting is a seven out of ten, but the dialogue's a five out of ten. And then the costuming is like, eh, you know, you can tell the budget. This is like the only show I can think of where like acting in season eight, 10 out of 10, set design, 10 out of 10, costuming, 10 out of 10, stunt work, 10 out of 10, uh, cinematography, 10 out of 10. And then yeah, you get the to score like the score, 10, like 10 out of 10. And then the you best get thing you've ever heard. Yeah. Then you get to like plotting and it's like zero out of 10, three out of 10, <laughs> five out of 10. Like nobody's given it 10 out of 10, I don't think. And I'm, I've never seen something that's like just... Like, like the plotting was their dump stat to go back to like a D&D kind of analogy. Uh, and I think that's what really complicates people's feelings about it. Because like, I really love Game of Thrones production. I, there's yeah. hardly anybody to fault except for the the stuff the the two people on top and their decisions about the way they ran the writing room and what they thought was important to the fans. Yeah, and I it it is like you said, very unique. Like this, it's also like just flat out this adaptation overtaking its original source material has never happened on this scale before. Like everything about Game of Thrones feels unprecedented and also 
like unrecreatable. Like, I don't think that we're ever going to have a show like this again that causes this kind of a fervor in its ending just because we don't watch TV in the same way anymore. Um, but yeah, so on like my sense of how people feel, especially online is like, there's definitely some burnout there where like people, there was a few weeks, like maybe like a month after the finale where like people still seemed really into like discussing their feelings. And most of those feelings were negative. And there was this kind of like, you know, the memification of like shitting on the show and all of like the free folk memes and stuff. And that was like, that kind of like kept things going for a little bit. But even now, like even that has died off. Like people just seem to flat out not really want to talk about it as much. And I mean, that's kind of bad for me as I'm trying to sell this book. Hey, like I said, that was the thing that I I felt like is that uh, there was, it was hard to sell Game of Thrones enthusiasm in the final season of Game of Thrones. uh, Cause like, you know, I was, I was, I had a book of my own. I was trying to move. So I I feel you on that. Now it's interesting because I was looking the, the last significant piece of critical analysis I can think of a Game of Thrones is Lindsay Ellis's, like epic two-part like game of thrones hot take and it got two million views yeah Uh, so like there's still some appetite for that because i just i think there's you know it's kind of like a like a non-serious natural disaster or political crisis where it's just fun to kind of theorize and speculate about but there's very little stakes and yeah um, i don't know well i i want to talk about some more positive things uh (laughs) at this point um there is so much behind the scenes, really interesting information that you have in the book. Uh, I really liked the chapter towards the end on the everyone getting their death phone calls. Yeah. Uh, like how this is like, so, like uh, the, the way some of them talk about it, it's like you get a, a you know, the, the, the straight troopers are calling you late at night and like there's been an accident, you know, and it's not that serious, but like a lot of these people, you know, it's. You get a call, and especially if you're not reading ahead in the books, because I know that was a choice a lot of the actors made. Uh, this is a huge career, and also a lot of people died before they were supposed to die in the books. Uh, right. You know, I'm thinking of like Bar- you know, uh, Sir Barristan. It's like that probably yeah. came to a shock to poor Ian. Um, but like that was such a huge. You know, if you get written out of the show, you're dying out of the show. It's such a huge career. Um, it's such a huge impact to your career. Uh, I just thought it was interesting that that was like, a, you know, a ritual that the, if, if you got that yeah. phone call from the double D's, you knew what was coming because they don't just call you out of the blue to, to discuss your hairstyle, your costuming or whatever. Yeah, I know. I It is kind of funny. It's funny to think of obviously how close everyone on this crew must have been. But the fact that Benioff and Weiss like withheld like direct contact with the actors unless it was the sorry you're dead and out of a job call is kind of funny to me um i also loved like natalie dormer was one of my favorite anecdotes in there because she like she actually contacted them to be like hey like i have this other job that i might be getting and i wanted to talk about like the schedule and of shooting and everything and they were like oh yeah you're you're, yeah, don't you're worry dying, about so it. So that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> you're fine. You can, you can take that job or whatever. Um, and then, like inversely, reading so like reading so many of those anecdotes, and then hearing that like they didn't have a conversation with Amelia Clark ahead of time, and mm-hmm. like just kind of like sent the scripts off and like let her absorb what happened was really kind of surprising 
to me because she, you can tell in interviews and stuff that she was so affected by how Danny's story ended. Well, like there's and, the famous story of Kit Harrington, like at the table read, like, in fact, we, right. we saw that, we saw that recording of like him not knowing yeah. and getting to that and just like, Oh my God, it's a moment. Yeah. Yeah. And I, it's, it's interesting that by the time the final season rolled around, they're like, okay, you're all just going to get the news at the same time via these scripts, which makes sense. But I think for a character as big as Daenerys, and I think given again, like so many people took issue with how quickly that happened to her. Mm -hmm. And I think if they had just, if they had made an exception and told her like a season early Mm -hmm. and been like, Hey, like this is where, this is where you're headed and we need you to start like, thinking about that yeah yeah just just weaving it maybe into the background of her performance a little bit not an way, but just like i i i think that the fact that that shocked her so much kind of reverberate like reverberated through fans being also really uh unsettled with how quickly yeah they looked at the dragon mom and if mom's scared then the kids are too it's like (laughs) (laughs) and there's a lot of like interviews where you can tell there's like a tightness around the eyes and they're like oh best season ever uh who do you think took it the worst they're the news yeah um oh lordy that's a good question i don't know my the funniest one to me was when they tried to prank alfie allen and Mm. be like Oh, we're killing you. And he just like, didn't care. <laughs> <laughs> cool. That, cool. That, was, that was more amusing to me. He was like on vacation and they were like, Hey, just get the scripts. And he's like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> like, I'm leaving this show. Um, I, yeah, I think the all like Michelle Fairley and Richard Madden talking about the red wedding was really that, that I really love that story because you can tell that they were so close and that having to film the deaths of their characters was really, it really took a toll on them emotionally because they felt like they felt like they felt that loss in the same way that I think the rest of us were feeling it. You also have a chapter around the same spot where you talk about the the pranks that like uh, this was like a top down pr- uh, prank production that the double D's got into, you know, pranking the actors and the actors got into it. Uh, what do you think the funniest prank that was played on someone was? I do really love um, Hannah Murray and Kit Harrington like ganging up on uh, John Bradley West, who plays played Sam with right. like his costume. I think um, just because that, like you know, I again, you can tell how close all these all these folks got over the years, and I don't like Kit Harrington is always so serious, like he's. I feel like he's very, he's obviously very serious on the show as John, but like the idea of him like conspiring with Hannah Murray to be like, oh my God, we're going to tell him like this thing. And so, yeah, so they made him, they, they were the ones who got uh, David and Dan to pretend like they were giving him this like God awful costume. Cause he for... said he had been stuck in like essentially Maester's ro- like dark, you know, these dark uh, black yeah. brother robes the whole time. And then it's yeah. like, oh, you're going to get a new costume cause you're getting out of this whole thing. Right. And at the same time that Kit Harrington is like getting this like glorious, you know, stark cape and like right. this whole King of the North, yeah. Yeah. Like freaking John Bradley thinks that he's like they it's called a cod piece. It's like literally this like big kind of like jester's looking like medieval outfit with like a huge it's like a jock strap, but like yeah. one that's like dazzled to like look like I don't know, your dick covering. It <laughs> I 
Yeah, the, the, they described it like what was like some kind of nightmare Henry VIII kind of thing. Because like, <laughs> and if you look at like a lot of the the Game of Thrones covers before it got released as an HBO series, uh, like they hired some fantasy author, and he is always illustrating it in that kind of style, where the big puffy sleeves with the stripes yeah. and the the weird hats with the big plumes coming out of it. It's very uh it's very kind of shakespeare uh production uh instead of like you know grim medieval realism uh kind of direction and it's, it reminded me of that that he's and it's all like like pepto-bismol pink uh yeah and just uh, the other thing is the funniest thing is that like john's just a good sport about it. he's like well i guess this right. might cost you know yeah he like he wasn't like immediately like there's no way he was like okay like yeah he was a he was a total pro but yeah. i love that H- hannah murray was like I could tell, like, I could tell that he was upset, but he just wasn't saying anything. (laughs) Uh, It's not a prima donna. What's the most surprising thing you learned in researching the book? Oh, that's a great question. Um, My inner capacity for stress. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I, it's hard to pick just one thing, but I think in general, all of that early season one, information and like again back to like the pilot and like interviews around that time because I wasn't I wasn't covering the show professionally until season five and so I was always just watching it as a fan and I was never I wasn't someone who went and read like every single post-mortem interview with an actor or all of that all that jazz I was I was just basically on like the subreddits and so anything that was picked up from the A Song of Ice and Fire subreddit folks, I would know. Mm-hmm. But it was for me, it was a lot of fun, like going back and reading like uh, the director who did that initial pilot, uh, Tom McCarthy, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, I, think. I don't, I need to read my own book. Cause I, <laughs> <laughs> it's been, it's been a minute. Um, but yeah, like the original director kind of had this very, uh, very frank interview that he gave back in 2011, just being like, no, like uh, he he basically said that when he makes something, he likes to feel like he has some sort of an input and that he's helping sort of craft the look and the feel right. of it. And that just wasn't the deal with that pilot. Like he 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 wasn't the person who was kind of like making calls. It was really Benioff and Weiss, Weiss's vision. And he just was he there just to execute it. Yeah, yeah. And I thought that that was really interesting and that that was, you know, kind of part of what played a role in him not returning to film the actual final, final version. So, yeah, that was really interesting to me because, again, it it speaks to all of these little things that were there from the from the inception of the show all kind of explain what happened 10 years later when they were filming the final season. But it's just, you know, people weren't paying as close attention back then because they didn't have 20 million people watching every Sunday night. They like barely had two. And those 2 million people weren't like, Oh my God, this is the biggest show I've ever seen. It was just like another new show back then. So I think all of that revisitation of, of people talking about those early seasons is really fascinating to me. So what do you think about the prospects of Game of Thrones, like the property moving forward? Uh, You know, there's, there's at least one prequel. I think there's actually two being greenlit and worked on by HBO. Of course, Martin could always at some time, I don't know, finish Winds of Winter. 
<laughs> there's also Fire and Blood Volume 2 coming out. Uh, something I'm always asking myself uh, as a person who covers, you know, makes part of my livelihood, no small part of my livelihood, and covering Game of Thrones. Uh, what do, do, is your feeling that the fans, as soon as there's a new property out, are going to uh, be ready for it, are going to be eagerly anticipating it? Uh, what, what's your What's your read on that? Yeah, I don't I don't think it's going to be the same number of people. I think that I think that there would have been a drop off anyways from the finale of Game of Thrones to whatever the next prequel is and we'll see. They they've definitely greenlit two pilots. We don't have a whole series that right. we know for sure right. is coming out yet. So, yeah, I think there was always going to be a drop off. I think that drop off is going to be a little more stark than it may be. Ha, Party hard. Uh, did not mean to do that. I'm so sorry. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I think I think it's going to be more drastic than it would have been had they like fully stuck the landing and had 100% approval on on the decisions that they made there. My best, my like optimistic hope is that it turns into like a Breaking Bad, Better Call Saul situation mm-hmm. where it's a much smaller audience, but it's like a very beloved and like critically acclaimed spinoff prequel thing that they managed to pull off um that's a good because like that's the thing is like better call Saul doesn't try to be breaking bad like right. it's got a slower pace it's more deliberate it's uh you know not quite as kinetic uh but they really go for broke on the you know character development and the right. uh, interpersonal relationships yeah I mean my biggest my biggest hope and I mean we know that they were they were working on these pilot scripts before the final season came out, but my hope is that a lesson is taken from the way that people received the final season and that whoever's working on these shows understands that the reason why they were so beloved had, sure, it had something to do with that epic high fantasy aspect of it, but it really boiled down to this like incredible set of characters and the way that those characters were developed over a long period of time. Um, so I think either something, yeah, like I said, more better call Saul situation or like a more limited series type of thing, you know, where we don't necessarily go into it expecting to get 73 hours of the next story, but maybe it's just like an eight or 10 episode thing. And sure, there's some epic battles and whatever thrown in there, but really what it does is kind of just expand the world and give us maybe some answers to questions that we we didn't know we had or that we already do have about this world. And yeah, that's my best hope for it. But it's really, I no longer feel like I can confidently say like, oh yeah, it's going to be awesome and huge. And I can't wait. I'm, I'm very, there's a lot of trepidation now, I think around it. And I wouldn't be surprised if that's how most Game of Thrones fans feel, unfortunately. Well, I, uh, appreciate you coming on the show. I think uh, the unofficial guide to Game of Thrones is a must read if you're a fan of Game of Thrones. And there's a lot like other than just the behind the scenes, uh, the behind the scenes information we've talked about. There's just tons of stuff about like fan reactions and kind of covering like big events, like you know uh, everybody's preoccupation with the Red Wedding and 
filming people's reactions to it and stuff like that there's a lot of like reading through it is very nostalgic and like uh, a fan archaeologist like oh digging through all the layers of like oh right this is when this was a moment this was this a moment um it's a real real nostalgic fun read it's an easy read uh i recommend it to everybody kim where do you where do you find this book if you want if if you have the mind to to purchase it (laughs) well first thank you so much that's so lovely of you to say um yeah you can find it there's like a simon and schuster landing page which has links to everything um so if you look up like kim renfro guide to game of thrones um you can buy it on amazon you can go to any local bookstore call them and they'll be able to order it for you barnes and noble uh there's an audible there's an audiobook on audible which is pretty cool and you can Very even buy cool. it on like cd which hey that would be pretty crazy if my book's <laughs> like on compact disc in someone's living room uh, <laughs> so yeah all those places and if you find me i'm on twitter at kim r renfro and my like pinned tweet i think right now is just like an easy link so yeah you can find it there on uh for everyone listening's convenience i will have links to all that in the show notes uh kim again thanks for coming on it's always a pleasure to have you and uh can't wait to collaborate with you again yeah thank you so much 